Good morning. Uh, I want to welcome you here. I'm so glad that you're here today. If you have a Bible, I'm going to have you go to two different places, um, and then you can just hold your finger there. The first place is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and the second place is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And so uh, I'm going to read those here in a second. Um, but first, let me just kind of tell you uh, where we're at and what we are doing. I'm so glad that you're here today. We're starting a, a new short three-week series called Sola Scriptura. If you don't know what that means, that means by Scripture alone. This phrase, it, it, found, its, um, it, it found its rally cry, its place, during the Reformation, led by Martin Luther. And so the five solas of the Reformation, if you don't uh, know them, which distinguished the reformers from the Catholic Church were sola scriptura, so by scripture alone, solas Christas, by Christ alone, um, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, and seadea gloria, glory to God alone. And so this phrase still has a place today, and so, um, you know, as we move on to other series and do other things here at Renewal, um, you know, we have to ask the question, okay, everything we do is from scripture. Um, and so it's good for us to take a moment and say, what do we mean if we say we live by Scripture alone? What does it mean um, to say that we believe in the authority of this book? That if everything we talk about is going to come from this book, then it's good to take a second, right, and talk about this, why we believe that. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to center ourselves on the purpose of the Scriptures. And so this series is actually going to feel a little bit different uh, than our other series. Typically, we go, we take a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse. But as myself and the other elders prayed uh, and discussed, we felt led by God that, hey, we need to take a second and really consider the purpose of the Scripture. Now, so this series is going to feel a little bit topical. In fact, today it's going to feel a little bit more education-y. I don't, I don't know how to say it. I almost wore my glasses so that I can make you call me Professor Colton, um, but I didn't. Uh, and it's not the normal hat I put on, but when I need to, I will, and I get excited about it. Um, but we don't want topical to be our normal rhythm here, but it's good for us to take a second and talk on a specific topic. And so we're going to focus on the scriptures, on the Bible for the next three weeks. So today we're going to ask a very broad question, and that is, how do you know that the copy of Scripture that you hold in your hand or your phone, uh, how do you know that your copy of Scripture is trustworthy? How do you know that you can trust it? How do you know that it hasn't been changed or corrupted in any way? Can you trust this book? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Second, next week we will be looking at the authority of Scripture. If, if I can trust this, okay, what does that mean? Do I really have to obey everything that's in this book? Why does this piece of paper have authority over my life? And is it necessary? Is it sufficient on, on its own? Like, should it be used in partnership with something else that has authority in my life? Or is it just this alone? And then third, in two weeks, we will be looking at the usefulness of Scripture. How did God intend for his word to be received and used? And so that's where we're going the next three Week. So let's jump into our two texts for today. I'm going to read them here at the beginning, and then we're going to circle back to them at the end of our time. And so just kind of mark them in your, script, in your Bible, uh, and then we'll, we'll come back to them. But I want to read them now. 
First is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were hit with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, All right, before we jump in, I want to give some credit to some folks whose notes I'm using, okay? About 13 years ago, I heard a sermon, so I was, uh, in, my, I was in my early 20s, I heard a, a guy named Ben Stewart give a talk about this topic, and it was very influential in my life, uh, and stirred a lot of study for me, personally. Uh, and so I'm using a lot of those notes from that sermon, and then also I'm using a lot of notes from a book written by Daniel Wallace, I don't know if We have any, I know we have one DTS person here, Uh, but um, I know Daniel Wallace is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's one of the, he is probably the leading New Testament scholar in the world. And so he wrote a book called Revisiting the Corruption of the New Testament. And so it's a pretty serious read. (laughs) So if you want to tackle it, prepare yourself. But if you want to study further on this topic, I would uh, recommend that to you. If you want more of an introduction to this topic, then I would recommend a book called Taking God at His Word by Kevin uh, DeYoung. I'm also using several notes from one of my professors at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Dr. Yarnell. So I just wanted to say that because I don't want you to think that I'm really smart when I'm just using other people's notes. So um, I just just read, which you can do too, and I prayed. Um, So like I mentioned before, the question we want to ask today is how do you know that the Bible in your hand, in your possession, is what God intended you to have. How do you know that it's without error? How do you know that it can be trusted? And some of you have thought about this question. You've read about this question. You, you probably know more about this topic than I do. Now, some of you, you may be like, why are we talking about this? I didn't know that there was even questions about the Bible. And so you've never thought about this. You've never considered this. Well, let me tell you, there are many in the world today who believe that this book has been changed and corrupted over the centuries, right? Just a few months ago, I was playing disc golf down at Lions Junction. I was playing by myself, having a grand old time. And then there was another dude that was playing by himself. And I was like, okay, I guess I got to talk to him. I am a pastor, you know? Um, And so I started talking to this guy and we started playing together. And he inevitably asked me, so what do you do for a living? And I know when that question comes, the conversation from that point could go anywhere. And it's actually very exciting, right? So I said, I'm a pastor. Uh, And he, this is the first thing he said. He said, didn't Constantine change the Bible so that he could consolidate power? And I was like, oh, we are jumping right into it, all right? (laughs) 
And he went on to say, so why would you teach about a book that has been corrupted and manipulated through the years? And he went on to compare the Bible to the telephone game. You ever remember playing the telephone game, right? You sit in a line and someone starts with one sentence and by the time you get to the end of it, the sentence is completely different. I remember once the phrase, the cow likes to eat moon pies, turned into my mom was once a ninja turtle, right? I'll never forget that. Um, But there are people that will say that's exactly what has happened with the Bible. That's exactly what's happened with the Bible. That over the years, it has changed in form and structure and content. So, serious question, how do you know that what we center our lives on has anything to do with what God wanted us to know about himself? It's a really important question. And it's a question that has become more and more relevant even in the last like 20 years. How many of you have ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Have ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Kyle Smith, cool. Um, Well, it was a group of people in the 80s and 90s that presented themselves as the premier biblical scholars of the day. And they all got together, they all got together and they went line by line through the gospels and they voted on whether or not these verses were historical and they were accurate, whether they could be trusted that these were actually the words of Jesus. And they would vote by throwing beads in a bucket, okay? So red meant that these were the actual historical words of Jesus. Pink meant that they weren't his words, but the concept goes back to Jesus. And black meant they are not the words of Jesus at all. And by the time they finished, they said that only 18% of the Gospels was accurate. Only one sentence in the entire Gospel of John, and it was like Jesus said, huh? Right? It, it, was, it was a pointless, not a pointless verse. It was, it was a verse that didn't really say a lot. Now, how, do, how many of you remember the book, The Da Vinci Code? Anybody remember the book, The Da Vinci Code? Yeah, you remember when that came out and all the hubbub about that? Um, it was written in 2006 by Dan Brown. It was on the bestsellers list for years, and it even became a blockbuster movie. One of the quotes in that book, which it's a, we'll get to this, it's a fictional book, by the way, but people don't take it as fiction. Um, one of the quotes says, the Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless trans- translations, additions, and revisions. I remember sitting in Quero, Texas with, with some family members. They had just read that book, and I was going to school to be, uh, to, to going to seminary, and they were like, hey, I just read the Da Vinci Code, and I just want you to know that I think that you being a pastor is dumb. And I was like, huh? <laughs> like, what, what's going on here? Um, now, those two we can kind of brush off, right? We can kind of laugh at them. The Jesus Seminar has long been, um, I don't know, eliminated, right? They present themselves as biblical scholars, but they're like movie producers, some of them. So they're not a real serious group. The Da Vinci Code's a fictional book, right? Dan Brown has never tried to claim that it's not, and no one, histor- no one in historical scholarship takes him seriously. But there are people, there are many people, who are active today, writing articles on social media, YouTube, who make very similar claims that have written books and papers and all sorts of stuff, and their resume, if you will, can seem quite legitimate. One of them is a guy named Bart Ehrman, and his argument is much more serious. Bart Ehrman is an actual textual critic. 
a textual critic. So textual criticism is where you go and you look at some of the most ancient documents, like those from our Greek manuscripts with the Bible, and you compare the differences between the manuscripts and you try to understand those differences. It's actual a field filled with a lot of nerds, right? Um, that's a compliment, right? Um, and he wrote a book several years ago called Misquoting Jesus, Who Changed the Bible and Why? And in his book, here's what he said. I, I'm going to put the quote on the screen. He says, not only, talking about the original manuscripts of our New Testament, not only do we not have the originals, meaning the original Gospels, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals, or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made much, much later. And he's, we're going to get to this. He's fibbing a little bit here. But he goes on and he says, and these copies all different from one another in many thousands of places. These copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. And when his book came out, he went on all sorts of shows like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, Stephen Colbert Report, all these shows and really pushed this idea into the public square. And he went on in those interviews to say, there are more textual differences between manuscripts, right, in the New Testament manuscripts, then there are words in the New Testament. And by the end of those interviews that he would do, they, they would be laughing at the idea that someone would hold this book as important, that someone would make this book the foundation of their life. Essentially, he's saying we can't trust it at all. So is he right? In that quote, is he right? Let me warn you, kind of, Kind of. There is some truth, but let me show you um, how that has been manipulated. He's kind of right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you, I'm going to lead you to a little bit of despair, and then I'm going to gently pull you out of it, okay? Um, so we don't have the originals. And yes, there are more textual variances, differences, in the New Testament manuscripts than we have actual words, and we'll go into this a little bit more. So are we foolish in believing the Bible is the very foundation of life? And as Christians, when you come into a conversation like this, how do you handle that? What do you, what do, you do with that? Well, one response could be despair, that your faith is just destroyed and you just throw it all away. Another response could be ignorant certainty, that we ignore what he says or what others say, and we just say, well, I'm just going to believe it no matter what, and we kind of walk forward in blind faith. But I don't think either one of those responses are good, because our God has given us a story both in this book and through history, that shows he is trustworthy. I want to show you in these next few minutes just how good our God is. And so stick with me uh, as we talk about manuscripts and textual variants, because God, man, if, if this sinks in and the scriptures sink in, it will bring life to your heart in a new way to see the, see the scriptures. So let's start with a question. Okay, what about the manuscripts? What about the original or the New Testament Manuscripts. Do we have the original New Testament manuscripts? No, we do not. All 27 books of the New Testament were written on something called papyrus. Papyrus was a plant that you would mash together and then you would write on it. It had the consistency of a grocery bag and it wouldn't last more than 100 years. The only way it could survive if it was in an incredibly dry environment. There are only three places in the world that we have found papyri. Okay, three places in the world, Egypt, Qumran, which is the Dead Sea, 
and Herculaneum at the base of Mount Vesuvius. These are extremely dried places. So we don't have the originals, but we do have copies, singular, of the originals. And, and here's the issue. Here's the issue. I'm just going to be honest. None of these copies agree 100%. Two of the earliest manuscripts in the New Testament differ six to, t- six to ten times per chapter, meaning when you compare them, they differ in precision. They don't match exactly. Um, there's some stats up here that Marshall's going to put up. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. So that means there are over 2,000 differences between our earliest manuscripts. And there are 140,000 words in the New Testament. So how many textual variants or differences are there between all of our Greek New Testament manuscripts? Somewhere around 400,000. If you're tracking, that means that for every word in the New Testament, we have about 2.5 variants per word. Now, on the surface, that looks scary, right? That looks like people like Bart Ehrman are right. Maybe we don't have the true words of God. Maybe the Bible is false. Now, let me warn you, this is where guys like Bart Ehrman and other liberal scholars, this is where they stop. They don't tell you the full story. So, why is there so much textual variance between the manuscripts? One of the reasons is that we have so much textual variance because we have so many manuscripts. If you only have one manuscript, right, how much textual variance do you have? You got none, right? You got one document. So you start adding documents to that, what's in that and they're being handwritten. What's inevitably going to happen? You're going to have some variants. The more manuscripts you have, and this is the good news, the more manuscripts you have, it's easier to track down legitimate mistakes as you're handwriting something. So what has happened is that we have an embarrassment of riches in New Testament manuscripts, and you can actually track down where someone may have messed up. Maybe they fell asleep while they were writing. I don't know. Let me show you an example, a legitimate example. Go in your Bible to John chapter 5, verse 4. I want you to actually open up your Bible and go to John chapter 5, Verse 4. If you don't know where John is, open it up halfway, you'll get to the Psalms, open it up halfway again, and you'll get to the Gospels, and John is the last Gospel in the four Gospels. John chapter 5, verse 4. Okay, are you in John? Are you in chapter 5? I heard a no. Are you in chapter 5? Do you see verse 4? Who in here has a King James Version of the Bible? If you have a King James Version of the Bible, you have a verse 4, but for most of us in here, you will not. You will not. So it's probably split in here. Some of you have a verse 4, and some of you don't. And so the natural question you're asking is, why? (laughs) Right? Why is there no verse 4 in some of our Bibles and some not? The first thing we have to understand here is that the chapters and verses in your Bible are not inspired by God. The words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the numbers and verses are not. And centuries ago, say when the King James Bible was written, we had a limited number of manuscripts. So the King James Bible was written in 1611. It was based on seven Greek manuscripts. And the oldest one was written in the 12th century. That's 1,200 years after the time of Jesus. And since then, we have been able to gather a number of more manuscripts, and we've been able to compare them to those that we already had, thousands more. And we have discovered that the earliest manuscripts 
did not have John 5, 4 included. So that's why Bibles like the ESV, the CSB, they, they have taken verse 4 out. And more than likely, if it's not in your Bible, it's probably mentioned in a footnote at the bottom, especially if you have a study Bible, what verse 4 is, that the later, version, or the, the later manuscripts had verse 4 included. It was to give context about this pool that was being discussed in John chapter 5. So here's an interesting question. Here's an interesting question. How many Greek manuscripts do you think we have today? If the King James Bible was written based on seven, how many do you think we have today? Fourteen? We have today 5,839. We're still finding more. In fact, um, I gave this talk in 2014, and at that time we had around 5,600. So that was about eight years ago. So we're still finding some. Today, here's another question. Do all of the Greek manuscripts have the full New Testament? No, only 59 do. The average size of a Greek New Testament manuscript is about 550 pages long. And early on, the New Testament was translated into Latin as early as the second century. And we have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts. And if we didn't have manuscripts in Greek or Latin, we would have about uh, 5,000 to 10,000 in other languages in other languages. So let's compare that. You've got all those numbers. I know you remember them all. Um, let's compare that to other ancient literature. I'm going to give you the name of five guys. Stay with me. Five guys. Three guys, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius. These are three guys that we base everything we know on ancient Rome. They are first century Roman historians. And everything we base on ancient Greece is from two guys, Thucydides and Herodotus. They are known as the fathers of historiography. And when we look at these guys, we base everything we know on ancient Rome and ancient Greece. How many copies of their manuscripts do you think we have? Of Livy, there are 27. Tacitus, we have three. And the earliest one is from 800 years after he wrote it. And if you were to add all of their manuscripts together, how many would you have? You would have less than 400. And the earliest one would be 300 years after the original. So let me ask question. Have you ever seen the movie Gladiator? Have you ever questioned its authority? You should. I love the movie Gladiator. Um, How does that compare to the New Testament? We have 6,000 Greek New Testament, 10,000 Latin, between 5,000 and 10,000 other languages, and the earliest fragment of the New Testament we have was written one to two decades after the original was written. If you were to take the average classical Greek Roman author, how high would their stack of manuscripts be? It'd be about four feet high. New Testament manuscripts, if you stack them up, they would be over a mile high. We have, as Daniel Wallace calls it, an embarrassment of riches. Let's talk about dates. What are some of the earliest manuscripts we have? One to two decades, but I actually want to tell you about one piece of manuscript, one papyrus in particular. It's called P52. You're going to feel like you're in class for the next few minutes. Okay, this is P52. Um, So um, in 1934, we discovered this piece of papyrus. Now, 90 years earlier, in 1844, there was a German scholar named F.C. Bauer. Anybody ever heard of him? F.C. Bauer said that the Gospel of John could not have been written until around 160 to 170 A.D., That was the premier idea for years, that the Gospel of John, since we did not have that many resources for it, that it was not historical and it was unreliable. 
Well, in 1934, a doctoral student at Manchester University in England found a three and a half inch tall by two and a half inch wide piece of papyri. And on the front and the back of it were verses from John 18. And he took that piece of papyri and he sent it to the le three leading papyri specialists of the day. Wouldn't that be a great job? I think it'd be fun. Um, and they each wrote back that this piece of papyri should not be dated any later than AD 150. That's at the latest. But it was probably written around 100 AD. A fourth guy, Adolf Deisman, said that it shouldn't be dated any later than the 90s. So think about that. F.C. Bowers said the Gospel of John could not have been written until A.D. 1, written, not copied, written. That's a difference. Written until A.D. 170. And then we find a copy from A.D. 90, and copies come after the originals. So when was the Gospel of John written? Probably around the Apostle John, right? See, a little ounce of evidence trumps a ton of presumption. And decades of German scholarship during that time just went up in flames. They didn't know it. They, I mean, it, you should read about it. It was crazy. People didn't know what to do. <laughs> Let me ask another question, because I know you've been thinking about this since I said it. What do you mean by variance? Let's talk about variance. What do I mean that there are variances, differences between our New Testament manuscripts? How different are the manuscripts? When Bart Ehrman says that there are 2.5 variants per word, what does that mean? I'm going to give you four categories of variances. Four categories. The first one is spelling differences. Spelling differences. So every time two ancient manuscripts are different, they write it as a variance, and spelling counts as a, as a variance. And I'm not talking about spelling errors. Those are different. Not spelling errors, spelling differences. Let me put an example for you. Oh, it's already there. Good job. Um, I mean, that's an example of the name John. So the name John in Greek can be spelled with one N or two Ns, all right? One N or two N. How many spelling differences make up those variances? 70%. Not errors, spelling differences. Bart Ehrman never said that to Stephen Colbert. Just saying. Second, second category of textual variance, word order. So in Greek, there isn't a real word order. In English, we have a rhythm in our word order, right? Um, subject, verb, noun, object. John throws the ball. It all makes sense, right? But word order in Greek doesn't matter, okay? Subject, the subject of the sentence can become, it can be at the beginning, it can be at the middle, or it can be at the end. It's all based on the ending of the word that determines if something's a subject, verse, noun, object. So if you take the phrase, Jesus loves Paul. In English, that's, there's a specific order to that. If you take that phrase and you put it in Greek, it can become a mess. And let me tell you, Greek is a nightmare. It's fun, but this is what makes it so difficult. And you can take the definite article, the, and you can place it anywhere in the sentence. People have written their dissertations on the word the, right? I mean, just crazy. So, uh, this sentence, this phrase right here, you can say it however you want. Jesus loves Paul. Paul loves Jesus. Loves Jesus Paul. Jesus loves the Paul. Loves the Jesus Paul. Paul loves the Jesus the. I mean, you can do over 500 variances of this phrase right here when you include the definite article. So when the is added in a manuscript where it wasn't previously in a different manuscript, that is counted as a variance. 
That is counted as a variance. One of the most common variances is, does it say Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ? Which one is it? Yes, exactly. But that's counted as a variance. What does that all mean? 400,000 variances in the New Testament is not all that daunting when you consider that 99% of them do not have any effect on what the Bible is communicating. Spelling differences and word order. Spelling differences and word order. Now let's get to the fun ones. Three, third category. Meaningful variances, but not viable. Meaningful, but not viable. Here's an example of a meaningful variance in your manuscript, but not really a viable one. Second, those are 1 Thessalonians 2.7. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So here Paul is describing how he and Silas acted among the new converts in their visit to Thessalonica. And in the ESV, it says we were gentle among you. In the NIV, it says we were like little children among you. The differences between those two words is a single letter, a single letter in Greek. So apioi means gentle, and napioi means little children. And the Greek word right before it is the word genonami. So is it genonami apioi or genonami napioi? Did you catch it? Exactly, right? One scribe during the 14th century, century changed the text to hippioi, which means we were like horses among you. Do you believe that Paul was like horses among them? No, you, you don't. That's a, but that's a meaningful variant. That's a meaningful variant because the word horses has a meaning, but common sense wouldn't tell you. And because we have so many manuscripts, you can track down which manuscript, which dude, our lady, wrote down hippioi. You can track that down, but common sense says they were not like horses among them. That is what we would call a meaningful difference, but not viable. Not viable. Here's the last one. Meaningful and viable. Meaningful and viable. And there are only a few of these. Don't have time to go through them all, but I want to show you uh, the most extreme example. Okay, um, And let me say, just up front, none of these change our understanding of Jesus our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of salvation, even things like history and morality, holiness. None of these change any of that. So let me show you the most extreme one. Revelation 13, 18. It says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Oh, this is going to be fun. That's what you're thinking, right? Um, in 1834, a German scholar went to Paris, and he looked at our second most important document on Revelation. It was written in the 5th century. That guy, Constantine von Tischendorf, which is a fun name, um, he was one of the guys that translated the majority of Re- Revelation. Now, another guy in the 1970s, he went, and looked at, um, he went and looked at this document. And the Revelation 13, 18, what he discovered was that it actually said, and the number of the beast, his number is 616. <gasps> Wait, are you saying that we've had the number of the beast all wrong? Hold on, it gets better. 20 years ago, uh, Oxford, Oxford University found 17 New Testament papyri. One of them was 26 different fragments on the book of Revelation. It's now our earliest manuscript on the book of Revelation. And Daniel Wallace notes in his book that he went to go look at it. It was in a glass case, and Revelation 13, 18 was on the back, so you couldn't see it. It was covered by a piece of paper. And he asked the guy, 
at the place, he said, how many people have come to look at this, the back of this document? And the guy said, well, including you, one. So Daniel Wallace got the document out of the case, and he read Revelation 13, 18. You want to know what it said? It said, and the number of the beast is 616. 616. So if you or someone you know has 666 tattooed on your arm, I just want you to question that decision. Not just because it, you may have the wrong number on your arm. Now, there is great evidence that the number of the beast is 666. There's lots of manuscripts with that in it. But let me ask you a question. Does it have any effect on what you believe about God? Any at all? That's the most extreme it gets. That's the most extreme it gets. Like, have you ever read a, a church's mission statement and they said, hey, we believe in one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who died for our sins and rose from the grave. And we believe the number of the beast is 666. If you do see that, you should run far, far away. So what does this all mean? In the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown says, My dear T being, he declared, until that moment in history, referring to the Council of Nicaea, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man, nonetheless, a mortal. He, he says, and many people believe this, that all the followers of Jesus until 325 AD, where there was the Council of Nicaea, um, that most people during that time, all people pretty much, believed that Jesus was just a good guy. And that Constantine put that he was God into the Bible. He rewrote the Bible for his own benefit, for his power. Well, we have a piece of papyri from John chapter 1. It's called P66. Put that on the screen. This is P66. This is from 150 AD, long before 325. So let's read this together, if you can read that. Uh, no, John chapter 1, you know it, many of you. This is what this document says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Go down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's exactly what you have in your Bible. There are no meaningful and viable textual issues around the persons of Jesus. And the issues that we do have, none of them contradict any of our core doctrines, doctrinal beliefs. None of them um, discard the character of God, the holiness of God, and morality. None of them. What about the Old Testament? What about the Old Testament? You're like, okay, New Testament, great. What about the Old Testament? Well, for centuries, all we had were three manuscripts on the Old Testament. The oldest one that we had was from 896 AD. It was called the Masoretic Text. Okay? That's a 896 AD. That's a long time since guys like Moses and the prophets wrote, right? That's a long time. Well, in 1947, a shepherd boy was throwing some rocks in the cave and he heard something break. He went in there and he found some documents written on some leather that came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. In that cave, we found over 600 manuscripts. 25% of them were from the Old Testament. They dated from 1st century BC to the 1st century AD. Every book of the Old Testament except for Esther. In a moment, we leapt 1,000 years. And so they took the text from AD 896 and compared them to the Dead Sea Scrolls just to see how messed up the telephone game was. 
just to see how much people change the text, how much influence men had on Scripture. This is a biblical scholar. I think I've got the quote um, up on the screen. This guy's name R. Laird Harris, and he said this about Isaiah 53. He said, A comparison of Isaiah 53 shows that only 17 letters differ from the Masoretic text. Ten of these are mere spelling differences, like honor and the English honor, and produce no change in the meaning at all. Four more are very minor differences, such as the presence of a conjunction, and, which are stylistic rather than substantive. And then, he says, uh, the other three letters um, are the Hebrew word for lights. This word was added to the text by someone after they shall see in verse 11. So, is it they shall see or they shall see light? And he goes on and he says, out of 166 words in this chapter, only this one word is really in question. And it does not at all change the meaning of the passage. We are told by biblical scholars that this is typical of the whole manuscript of Isaiah. A thousand years and nothing changed about Isaiah 53. Let me read that to you just so you can hear what our God wanted to preserve for us. Let it sink into your heart. This is Isaiah 53, the first five verses that didn't change for a thousand years. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him sick and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God has secured a gospel for us. That even though we have rejected him, he embraces us. He sent his perfect son from heaven to broken earth to save us from death, to bring us satisfaction and joy that we cannot get anywhere but him. And he wants you and I to know him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know what he's like. He wants to know us to know what he's Done. So let me read the verse from the beginning again. Second Timothy 3.16. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. That means that this book, these scriptures, they're divine. They're divine. That God has revealed himself to us through these words, and we can trust them. We can trust them. So if you ever hear anyone here, say, if you hear, ever hear any of us say, we believe that God's word is inerrant. If we ever say that, this is what we mean. We believe that God's word is true, and we believe that it's without fault, that God has said exactly what he intended to say, and we hear and read exactly what he intends for us to read. And just let me be extremely clear, right? Because there are some that would hold this view of something like, uh, limited inerrancy, which says that the Bible is true in matters of faith, but not true in matters of morality, morality, history, or even science. That view doesn't hold any weight. And I don't say that to condemn you if you believe that. I just say that to plead with you, that you're being lied to, <laughs> right? Because if we deny 
the full inerrancy, you're, you're, you're put in a corner to come to two conclusions, right? If you deny that this Bible, this book is without fault and it's true, if you deny, you're, you're put in a, a situation of two opportunities, right? That to say, to deny the full inerrancy, you're forced to either say either scripture is not from God. It's not just part, right? You can't just say, well, part of it's true, but part of it's not. It doesn't work like that. Either this is what God intended to tell us or it isn't. Either God told, intended to tell us this or he didn't, right? So the first option is to say, well, all scripture is not from God, which 2 Timothy 3.16 uh, clearly says it is. Or second, we must conclude that God is not always dependable. We can't trust him. We can't trust his word. When we reject inerrancy, the trust of this book, we put ourselves in judgment over God's word, claiming the right to determine which parts of God's revelation can be trusted and which parts can't. And this book was intended not for us to be the judge of it, but to tell us one story, one story, that God made each one of us in his image, and we rejected him. We fell short. And then from Genesis 3 on, it is a story of what God did, what God accomplished, accomplished, how he moved the pieces on the board throughout history so that he could come himself to be a sacrifice, to die on a cross for our sin. And the end of the story that this book tells is that he's coming back to get us. And you can trust that story. You can trust that story. Let me just really quick mention Second Peter. Second Peter 1, 16-21. I don't have time to read the whole thing again, um, but the context here in Second Peter, it's, it's an exhortation for godliness. Okay? That's what he wants them to be. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to be godly. And Peter's concern is that false teachers are creeping into the church. They're, they're promising people freedom, right? And what, what's happening is Peter is afraid that these false teachers are going to end up leading this church astray. And Peter tells them that, hey, you need to ignore those false teachers, and he should ignore them because, here's his reason, you should ignore those false teachers because Christ is coming back one day. He's returning. And when he returns, he wants his church, this church, to be holy, prepared, not let astray. And to prove his exhortation, Peter gives two pieces of evidence. First, he claims that he was an eyewitness. He is sure of Christ's return because he was there with Jesus on the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, when he saw Jesus' face glow. He saw his face glow. He, he saw something miraculous. He saw God, fully divine God. And he says, I saw the transfiguration. I know that that Jesus is coming back. So first, it's eyewitness testimony. Second, he claims that his exhortation for holiness is true because the written word was produced by the Holy Spirit. That, that word Peter uses for scripture in verse 20, it's the word graphe. It refers to something that has been written down. That in this book, the Holy Spirit used men like Moses, John, Luke, Peter to reveal to us the very words of God. The very words of God. So this Bible is without error, right? Not because we're saying that, men, not, we're not saying like this. I think sometimes this, uh, this idea of just blind ignorance is, well, there's no question around it and all manuscripts are true and blah, blah. No, no, no. When we say without error, we're saying without error. This is exactly what God has intended to say to us. Exactly what God has intended to say. From Genesis to Revelation. 
all the way through. And in this word, we discover a God who is just, he's holy, he's faithful, and he's merciful. And as Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to them, right? And so here's my hope for you and myself, because I think when circumstances get hard in life, suffering especially, and anxiety, I think our first temptation is to draw away from this. It is. It's to draw away from this. I don't know why. I think that's different for different people, but I think there's something in our flesh that when life gets hard, we, we move away from this. And the best thing you can do, the world and your mind and your flesh will promise you freedom, that you can find freedom in other things and it will make you question this, whether it's authority, necessity, if it's, if it's actually good, if it's actually true. And so the flesh and the spirit, they both promise the same thing, right? They both promise freedom. If you do this, you'll get freedom. The difference is only one of them can deliver. You find your hope carried by the Holy Spirit, stirring your affections to understand God's words, making sense of it for you. That is the only thing that can find you, give you real freedom. His word. Your flesh, the world, it can't. It will promise it. Say, hey, if you do this, you'll be happy. You'll find freedom. It's lying to you. It's lying to you. This is our foundation. This is what we build our lives on, that this word is true, and we can know and have a relationship with a true, genuine, holy, just, loving God. And this book tells us about it. 